You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit GoCentralChurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Mike Corbin. My name is Mike. I am the student pastor here at Central. Uh, if you have not been here, uh, if, if maybe your first time here was actually yesterday at our fall festival, we want to say that we are just so glad that you joined us today. Uh, so yes, I am the student pastor. I work with uh, basically 6th grade through 12th grade. Uh, or you might remember me as the person who, uh, I was the first person to get that whipped cream stuff in the face yesterday. Uh, I don't know if you've ever gotten whipped cream in your face uh, and in your hair, but that smell uh, is very strong and it doesn't come out easily. So... Uh, so that was what my night, that's what my night consisted of last night. Uh, I don't know about you, but so um, last time, uh, so if you have your Bibles, uh, I encourage you to open to Philippians chapter 2. And while you were doing that, uh, I'll just, I'll just kind of share a little bit about myself. Last time I spoke on Sunday morning, I shared with you my affinity for college football. And, uh, and some of you still, uh, some, uh, still you know, like me afterwards. You know, I didn't upset anybody, which is good. Uh, but this morning, I figured I would share a little bit about my affinity for NFL football. Uh, and that namely being the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, I am a big, da- yeah, amen. Uh, I'm a Cowboys fan. That's okay, Pastor Josh is an Eagles fan, and we pray for him daily. Um, but uh, no, so I'm a Cowboys fan. Uh, I've been raised a Cowboys fan my entire life. Uh, this is very. This is a true story. Uh, growing up, uh, we had pictures of our family on the mantle of our fireplace, and a, this is a true story. One of the pictures on the mantle of our fireplace was of longtime running back Emmett Smith uh, on the mantle of our fireplace. <laughs> Uh, so I don't know if he knows it or not, but he's, he's one of us. Um, <laughs> and so also, uh, one thing that, you know, with that, there's been historic moments in Cowboys history. And one of them is actually one that, it was actually the year before I was born, but I know this uh, by, you know, reading it, I've seen the video of it. Uh, some of you, if you are a Cowboys fan, or if you are a Buffalo Bills fan, you will probably know this story. It's January 31st, 1993, in the Super Bowl. Uh, a Dallas Cowboy by the name of Leon Lett picks up a fumble. I already hear the affirmations and the amens, right? He picks up a fumble, and he picks it up, and he is running towards the end zone. He is about to score a touchdown. And I don't know if, how much football you watch, but there are a few things in sports as gratifying as a big man touchdown, okay? This man is six foot six, 290 pounds, running with every ounce of energy he has towards this end zone. And right before he gets there, he starts to do something, and he starts to kind of showboat a little bit, right? Now, and you're that size, and you run at that speed, it's probably not wise to showboat, okay? But he's running, and, and he starts to kind of slow down, and he holds the football out. And, and as he does this, 5'11", 185-pound Don Beebe runs up behind him, and right before Leon Lett scores the touchdown, he knocks the ball out of his hands. The ball goes out of the end zone, which is a touchback, and it means that the Bills get the ball back. What turned what would have been this incredible moment, right? A big man touchdown in the Super Bowl ends up being just we redo the play. And it's amazing because what happened is, is that you, it's a reminder that oftentimes, a reminder that oftentimes celebrating a little too early could be a problem. 
And it's a reminder that humble pie is ready to be served to any person at any moment, right? And how this glorious moment was ruined by a lack of humility, a lack of humility. And when we talk about humility, it's something that a lot of us, it's a very interesting topic, right? It's a very interesting topic for us to talk about humility. It's funny because those who truly are humble will rarely call themselves humble. And those who call themselves humble probably aren't very humble, right? And humility is something that a lot of us look for in relationships, whether it be for a spouse or a friend or uh, work associates or our bosses, right? We, we just, we honor, we see humility as a virtue that is wonderful to look for in other people. But at the same time, it's something that so few of us spend time investing in ourselves. Like we want everyone else to be humble, but we very rarely practice humility in our own lives. Because oftentimes what develops humility is mistakes, life experience, falling on our face, getting the ball knocked out on the one yard line. And we gain humility oftentimes in ways that we don't want. So what we do is we actually run from the things that actually develop humility within us. But what we want to see this morning as we get into the word is we want to see that humility is something that we as Christians should not only see as a virtue to, that we want to see in others, but something that we should also pursue actively ourselves. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I hope that you would turn to Philippians chapter 2, and if you would stand with me as we read from the word of God this morning, as Paul writes to the church in Philippi. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of, the, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted, highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the fact that we can gather together and hear from what you have to say to us this morning. God, we know that your word says that your word will accomplish what you have set for it to accomplish. And God, we trust in that promise this morning that, Father, that your word will convict us where we need to be convicted. It would encourage where we need encouragement. But, Father, most importantly, that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word this morning. And God, we thank you and we praise you. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. So as we pick up in Philippians chapter 2, what we see is in the first two verses here, Paul is giving this exhortation for the believers in Philippi. He is, he's giving them a commandment, and this commandment is to be unified. You see it here as he says, he, he gives, and he gives this call for unity in the form of a conditional statement, right? When we see that word if in, ver, in verse 1, right, if, he's saying, all right, if, then he lays these conditions, and then he says, if, then be unified. So what are the conditions of this unity? 
What is it? So if we meet these qualifications, then we should strive for unity. Well, what are they? Well, based on the verse, these conditions would be this. Have you been encouraged in Christ? Comforted by his love? Have you participated in the gift of the Holy Spirit? And based on those conditions... And based on what Paul has laid out for us in chapter 1 and what Paul has laid out in all of his writings, this would apply to every person who claims to be a Christian. That this is not just for, the some, for some people in the church in Philippi, it's not just for some people in this room this morning, but the call to unity is a call that all Christians should strive for. Amen. It's not an optional thing. Unity is a command that is required of all believers, and we are called to strive for unity on the basis of the goodness of God towards us. And if you notice that unity is a common theme in Paul's writings, Paul is constantly talking about unity. If you were with us several weeks ago, Pastor Ethan actually preached on unity when we were going through the book of Ephesians. During our 21 days of prayer and fasting, one of the things we prayed for for a whole week was for unity. Jesus, when he is praying in John 17, on the night of his arrest, what does he he pray? He prays, when he's praying for his disciples and for future believers, he prays that they would be united. So unity is an important thing. But Paul doesn't just stop here at humility. As we read the rest of this, he opens with this idea of, okay, be united, but the rest of the passage is an explanation of humility. It's interesting, like, what is the connection between humility and unity? And what you'll find is humility is not just connected simply to unity, but humility is the key that unlocks the door to a thriving relationship with Christ. Not just unity, but humility is the key to so many things in our relationship with God. And I would be willing to bet that if there are areas in your life, in your walk with Christ, that are lacking, you can at some point boil it back down to an area in your life or in my life where there is a lack of humility. Edmund Burke has this quote, and he says, True humility, the basis of the Christian system, is the low but deep and firm foundation of all virtues. I believe that humility is one of the most important traits that you can have as a Christian, but for some reason, it's one of the traits that we talk about the least. Because if we're honest, humility is a trait that is often difficult to develop because we're all naturally selfish. If we're honest, we are all naturally selfish people. And think of every instance where there's been a lack of unity in this church or in other churches you've been in or a lack of unity between you and fellow believers and you could probably boil it down to an area where someone wasn't being as humble as they probably should be. And here's the thing, it's really easy for us to identify situations where there's a lack of humility. But when we look at those situations, it can be very hard for us to identify where the lack of humility is actually coming from. And even this morning when I talk about this, you're like, yeah, yeah, lack of humility. If you're thinking of a situation in your life and you're like, yeah, if that person would just be more humble, <laughs> right, then this would be totally fine. We wouldn't be in the predicament we're in. And why do we say that is because so many of us in this room, including myself, we like to think that we're more humble than we actually are. We like to think that we're more humble than we actually are. So if we're going to take seriously Paul's call for unity through humility, if we're going to take seriously Christ's prayer in John 17 for the church to be united, then we need to take seriously humility and we need to be able to identify what is Christ-like humility and how can we identify where we are falling short in our own lives. 
So with that, let's get started by looking at Paul's description of humility. His description of humility, verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. As I said before, humility is something that is very easy, is very difficult, excuse me, very difficult for us to pursue. And as we look in these verses, we begin to get a pretty good understanding of why. We look at this and we come face to face with our first description of humility, and it is this. It is not ambitious for its own glory. It is not ambitious for its own glory. See, in the Greek, the, the description of selfish ambition here literally means to put oneself forward. It's the same word that was actually used in the writings of Aristotle when he talks about, he's, he, it's, it, and it denotes a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. So it's this, it's this promoting of yourself for status. And then the word conceit here in the Greek is actually translated, uh, it literally means vain glory or empty glory. So what Paul is describing here is Paul is describing an attitude that asserts oneself in order to attain a level of status for the sake of empty glory. And when we put it that way, we're like, well, that's not me. That's not me. But what we have to see is that this is a problem. This is a problem that not only exists outside the church, it exists inside the church, and exists in every single one of us in our life in some form or another. See, the problem is not ambition. Ambition is good. We should be ambitious. We should have drive. The problem is found in what you're ambitious for. What are you ambitious for? Sadly, for many professing Christians, our heart's desire is not the glory of God. It is the glory of ourself. And this manifests itself in multiple ways. It manifests itself in, per in perfectionism. Sports, business success, spirituality, the soundness of our doctrine and theology, right? We see, see all of these things are good things, but are often manifestations or symptoms of a desire for self-glory. And here's why it can be so difficult to diagnose, because you can have two people that do the exact same things at the exact same times, and they do them equally proficiently, but they do them for two totally different reasons. That's exactly right. Two totally different reasons. And here's something, the more that I read the Bible and the more that I just I study the Word of God, the more I spend time looking at my own life, what I've learned is that God is not interested merely in what you do but rather he is interested primarily in your reasons for doing it. Why do you do what you do? God looks at the heart. Jeremiah 17, 10, I the Lord search the heart and I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Here's the question, why do you do what you do? Even the good things, why do you do it? Why do you serve? Why do you teach? Is it so that people will look on in amazement at how wonderful you are? When you teach, is it, do you do it so that people can look at you and say, man, that's a person that really knows what they're talking about. 
If we're honest, we all struggle with this in some way. And here's what we need to understand as Christians. Everything we do should be for the glory of God and for the good of others. That is it. Amen. For the glory of God and for the good of others. The second you begin to see yourself politicking for power or politicking for status or glory, you need to check yourself. Because a prideful heart can cause serious damage within Christ's church. The word for selfish ambition here shows up in a few other places in the New Testament, one of them being James 3.16, where James says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. See, our church right now is in a state of transition. We've talked about this a lot. We're in this state of transition. We're in the state of, you know, in between a lead pastor. And the one thing that could be detrimental to our church is everyone seeking their own glory rather than the glory of God and the purpose of his church. Amen. We were not placed here to amplify ourselves. We were placed here to make much of Christ. So what should we do? We should check our motives. Going back to this idea of unity, we can give the illusion of unity without actually having it. We're very good at that. Without being truly united. But here's the problem. Oftentimes, we don't even know our own motives. We talk about check your motives, but we really don't even know our own motives, do we? Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, if we're truly honest with ourselves, if we're truly honest, we may think that we are doing something for the right reasons, but in the end, God puts us in a position to reveal to us what our real motives are. I'll give you an example. All my life, I've grown up playing the drums. Uh, I, I, I got my first drum set when I was eight years old, which I don't know why my parents got a drum set for an eight-year-old. Um, I wouldn't. <laughs> I'd just be, I would set up some pillows and be like, yeah, go crazy, kid, you know. Uh, right? I, I, but, you know what? Hey, they, they loved me and, you know, good for them, right? <laughs> but I started playing drums when I was about eight years old. Uh, and there was a season of my life where before attending Central, we, were, uh, we attended a small church plant, and I played drums every week. I played drums every single week. And then when we came here, I went from playing drums every single week, and I was like, man, I love this. This is so awesome. And then I came here, and I wasn't playing drums at all. And as the weeks went on, I began to find myself becoming less and less content, more frustrated, and I found this longing to play the drums growing more and more as the weeks went on. And eventually it got to the point where my dad, me and my dad had a conversation. My dad told me, he says, can you worship without playing the drums? He says, because if not, you're probably worshiping the drums more than you're worshiping God. Amen. And that was, a that was a moment of like spiritually getting punched in the face, right? Just, oh, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. And what happened? See, it wasn't that I was intentionally having wrong motives. What happened was Christ God put me in a position to where my real motives would be revealed, where my real motives would be revealed. And oftentimes, I want you to understand this, oftentimes God will put you in a position, before God puts you in a position to serve, he will put you in a position to have your motives revealed. And if you think about it, that is the most loving thing God can do for you, is to put you in a position so that you can see why you're doing what you're doing. 
Because you don't want to be doing something for 10, 15, 20 years only to find out that the motive was for your own empty glory. Continuing on, he says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what is, the, what is contrary of selfish ambition? What's the opposite of selfish ambition? It's counting others as more significant than yourselves. Allowing your vain, empty glory to take a back seat. That's what we're talking about when we talk about humility. Here's the thing, this is completely contradictory to our culture. This is totally backwards. Even at this time in ancient Greece, the ancient Greeks found this type of humble thinking to be actually a bad thing. It was a fault more than it was a virtue. To the ancient people hearing Paul write this, they would say, hear, hear him use these words, it would be totally backwards. Humbling yourself before people? Like, like, like seeing yourself as lesser than? That's absurd. But here's the incredible thing about God. 1 Corinthians 1.27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. See, living the life that Christ has called the church to live always conflicts with culture. It always has and it always will. It always has and it always will. It's just how it is. So in our effort to evaluate ourselves, here are some quick questions to ask yourself to see if you're truly exhibiting Christ-like humility. I'm just going to kind of fly through them because there's, there's a handful. Are you okay when other people get credit for what you do? Does everyone have to know the role that you played in the project? Do you work just as hard when people aren't looking as when they are looking? Are you willing to sacrifice your desires for the good of others? When you come to church and you see young people being baptized and you hear the word of God being proclaimed and you see people getting saved, do you find joy in that or do you mainly just talk about how you don't like the type of music? Are you just as joyful worshiping on stage as you are off stage? Do you immediately get defensive when someone disagrees with you? Some of you are saying, okay, like that's enough for the questions, right? <laughs> that's enough. And it sounds starting to sound like you're talking about me. <laughs> you know, calm down. And here's the, here's the thing. You want to know where I got those questions? Looking at my own life. Because all of these are questions that I have at one time wrestled with or even currently still wrestle with. You know, it's amazing as pastors, you know, our job is to, we preach to a standard that even we ourselves struggle to live up to. See, I don't want there to be any notion that I get up here and I preach on humility that I have it all figured out. I don't want that to be the case. I don't want you to leave this place thinking much of me. I am not the standard. Christ is the standard. Christ is what we aim for. And why can I, why do I wrestle with these questions so badly? Because the more I live my life, the more I see just how selfish I truly am. Which brings us to the next point, which is the demonstration of humility. Starting at verse 5, says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now verses 5 through 8 are some of the most theologically rich verses in all the Bible. There's, there's so much. It describes the incarnation and the, condes, con, the con, condescension. There it is, right? Just use smaller words next time, right? But it, it, it talks about the incarnation of Christ. When we look at this, we get into the nature of who Jesus is, which leads us into the doctrine of the Trinity, which leads us into a rabbit hole of things. So what I want us to understand is this morning, we're not going to get into all of that. Let not your heart be troubled, Right? But these four verses are incredibly rich, incredibly deep. What Paul's doing here is he's, 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 he's giving us a higher level view, but he's showing us what true humility actually looks like. We could talk about humility all day long, but what does it look like? And notice that humility, true humility, is found in the life of Jesus. It's found in the the birth, the life, and the death, and the resurrection of Christ. That's where you find true humility. Don't seek, don't compare your humility to the humility of other people. Don't compare your humility to the humility of your friends or your pastor or whoever it may be. You compare your humility to is it, does it stand to the standard of Christ? And as we're going to see, for none of us, it doesn't. Sorry, for all of us, it doesn't, excuse me. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The main focus of what Paul is going to do over the next four verses is he's going to give us insight into the mindset of Christ. He's going to unveil the the humility of Christ in the gospel. And he's going to give us instruction. He says, have this mindset as well. So here is the mindset of Christ, and what you need to do is have this mindset as well. We're going to see the true humility, it's perfectly displayed in the incarnation, the life, and the death of Jesus. Before we can begin to even understand this kind of humility, though, we need to begin to understand who Jesus is. Until you understand who Jesus is, you'll never understand what it means for him to humble himself. You'll never understand the the significance of it. Now, like I said, these verses are rich with incredible theology, but they're also a hotbed for terrible heresy. There's a lot of false teachings that come out of these four verses. So what we're going to do is I'm going to kind of do what I often do with students as well, is we're going to kind of go through this. We're going to see what is the truth, but a great part of understanding truth is also understanding what is error. So we're going to also address what are some errors that people pull from these verses. First thing we see, we talk about who is Jesus. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God. Here's the thing we need to know this morning. Jesus is the fullness of God. The word for form here in the Greek is the word morphe. The word morphe has to do with the form that truly and fully expresses the being of an individual. It does not change. Basically, morphe is it's the basic essence of an individual that never changes and it remains constant. The form, the, the, the form that encapsulates the essence of a person. There's another word for form that you find in the Greek, and that is the word schema. And this word has to do with the external appearance. The external appearance, not the inherent essence. Does that make sense? All right? I'll give you an example. This is from another pastor that I've heard. So for me, I am a man. I was born a man. 
I live as a man, I'll die as a man, right? That's my morphe, that does not change. But my schema, at one time I was a fetus, then I was an infant, then I was a toddler, then I was uh, a kid, then I was an, you know, a teenager, then I became a young adult, right? Then eventually I will become a, a super adult, you know what I'm saying, yeah? Uh, right? I'll become even, right? Because that, my schema changes, but my essence of who I am as a man does not. Does that make sense? It's very important for us to understand. Because why do we specify this? Because Philippians 2 is a common passage that people go to to attempt to say that Jesus is not God. What do they do? They go and they say, ah, see, see, he's in the form of God. He's not actually God. And what they say that because they don't understand what the word form means. A couple of months ago, there's a very popular video that was released by a young actress that has just thousands upon thousands of followers of people that happen to be the age of kids in our student ministry. And this long video is basically describing how Jesus is not God. And here's the thing I want us to understand. You cannot deny the deity of Jesus and still be a Christian. I don't, I don't, I know, I, I, I try to say that as, as lovingly as I can. You cannot say Jesus is not God and still call yourself a Christian. This is a basic tenet of Christianity. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is by nature God. So we see that he is the fullness of God, but then we also go on and we see that, what does he say, in, uh, continuing in verse 6, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. We see that Jesus is God and he emptied himself. See, Paul will continue on by saying that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what exactly does this mean? Again, this is another proof text for a lot of people. What do they say? They say, ah, see, he saw this equality of God with God as something that he didn't want. He didn't want to seize that. So, so even Jesus didn't want to be considered God. And here's the thing, that makes sense on the surface until you read the rest of the Bible, but there, it makes sense, right? This is a common mistake that leads many young people into confusion, into error. To say that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, like what does that mean? Well, there's two definitions in the Bible of what this word grasped is. First definition is to think of it naturally how we naturally think of it, right? Is, is to seize something, to, to reach and grab something that is not yours, to take possession of it. But there's a second definition, which is the definition that's being used here. It says, grasp can be understood as the act of hanging on to something, retaining something, preserving it, and a refusal to let go of it. That is what we are talking about when we talk about this idea that Christ did not see equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But both definitions apply, right? Jesus did not see, desire uh, to seize equality with God. Why? Because he already was the fullness of God. But also, he did not see his status as God and his glory to be something that he would hold on to and hold on to and never relinquish. Why? Because what we see is when he emptied himself, what does he do? He emptied himself of his glory and his status. Wow. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. What? Is Jesus coming in the form of a baby? Coming in the form of a baby. I know another popular teaching with many modern circles of Christianity today is to say that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. 
when he was on the earth. And what they do is they try to say that all the things that Jesus did, you also can do. Why? Because Jesus did all those things as a man in right relationship with God, not as God himself. Why? Because he emptied himself of his divinity. And they'll go to this verse and say that's their proof for it. But here's rule number one of reading your Bible. You ready? Scripture interprets Scripture, and clear passages clarify unclear passages. Okay? So let's compare Scripture with Scripture, shall we? Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, both of these verses teach a fundamental teaching of the Christian faith, and that is the immutability of God, basically meaning God does not change. God does not change. Now, if you are going to claim that Jesus was God and that he released his divinity, that for a season of time Jesus ceased to be God, you are violating a core teaching of Christianity, and that is that God does not change. So clearly that can't be what this means. For Jesus to stop being God for even the fraction of a second would mean that he was never God to begin with. So clearly when Paul says that Jesus emptied of himself, he doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his divinity. It means that he emptied himself of his glory, which is what Jesus prays in John 17, verse 5. Jesus is praying, he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Amen. That's what he's talking about. What does this glory look like? Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees a vision of the throne room of God. It's a very popular passage. Verses 1 through 5, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am a lost man, for I am a, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That is the glory of Christ. And that is what he set aside. You see, humility is not simply marked by what you receive. It's marked by what you give up. And the reason your humility and my humility will never reach that of Christ is because we've never given up what he's given up. Here's the thing. If Christ can lay aside the fullness of his glory, you and I can lay aside our empty glory or our empty desires. And how did he do that? Continuing on in Philippians, by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human, fo- excuse me, in human form. How did he do this? He became a man. Right? That's what we celebrate in Christmas, right? Jesus becoming a man. How did he do this? He did this by taking on the form of a servant, as as Paul says here. And here's that word morphe again. So did Jesus stop being God? No. What did he do? He added to his nature. He added to his nature another form, the form of a servant. See, Jesus is not 50% man, 50% God. He's not fully God, and then he stopped being fully God, now he's fully man. No, Jesus is fully God, fully man. 
Fully God, fully man. Why did he do this? In order to serve us. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now as we keep reading, we see something interesting. It says, in being found in human form. See, the word form here is the word schema. So what does this mean? This means that what was the perception of people of Jesus while he was on this earth? It was the perception externally that he was just an ordinary man. When Jesus emptied himself of his glory, he took on the appearance of a man with no glory. No white horse, no man of reputation from a small town called Nazareth. Isaiah 53, talking about the coming Messiah, says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Behold our Savior humbling himself before his very own creation. Continuing on in Philippians, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what did he do? He became a man, and he obeyed even till his death. Think about that. The king of kings and the lord of lords, the one that answers to no one, humbled himself to be obedient. He surrendered his glory and his independence, willingly choosing to be dependent on the Father, the son was obedient in every way. Lived 33 years, never sinned. And his obedience and his humiliation led him all the way to the cross where he ultimately will die. However, we know that he does not remain dead. But three days later, he rises from the dead. Not only rising from the dead, but sealing the victory that he had and showing that his sacrifice was acceptable payment for you and for me. This is what we celebrate every single day as Christians. If Christ was never humiliated, if Christ was never humbled, we're wasting our time. We're wasting our time. Now we read all of this and we're forced to ask the question, why would Jesus do this? Why? Because remember, what's the motive, right? Because if we're trying to talk about, like, we want to aspire to this kind of humility, we want to understand, okay, like, what's the, what's the purpose? The answer brings us back to our original point, that Jesus humbled himself because you and I can't. Brings us back to our original point, James 4, 6, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Jay Crutchfield, your favorite verse in the Bible. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, you and me, we are proud. And we are, because of our pride, we are in opposition to God. We are born hostile towards him. You see, the description of humility that Paul gives us earlier in this passage is impossible apart from Christ. It's impossible. If you leave this place seeking, all right, I'm going to be really humble today. Like, I, I admire your effort, but you're never going to achieve it. You see, Jesus was treated as the proud so that you and I could be treated as the humble. Jesus was opposed by his father when he was on the cross so that you and I could be welcomed with grace. 
This is what we celebrate as Christians. And that is a humbling thought. If you struggle to be humble, think about that. That the reason that you are forgiven and the reason that you and I experience the saving grace of God in our lives is not because of our merit, but because of Christ's for us. I love this quote by, by St. Augustine. It says, the, the sufficiency of my merit is to know that my merit is not sufficient. So we see the, the definition of humility. We see the demonstration of humility. And the last part, which is very short, so do not worry, is the destination of humility. Verse 9 through 11. Therefore, that word therefore is very important. So all of the stuff that he's just said leads us to this point. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's the reason? What's the point of this humility? It's for the glory and the exaltation of God. And that is it. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself, why does God love me? I know I have. Why would Christ love me so much to sin himself, to die on the cross for my sins and for your sins? And the, typically the answer for this is because we say, well, because Jesus loves you. And that is absolutely true. God loves you. If you're in this room and you struggle with this idea of love and, and you feel like no one loves you, here's the thing that you need to know this morning is that the only one that matters does. God loves you. So much so that he sent his son to die for you. John 3, 16. But why though? Why? Why would he suffer like he did to save a sinner like me? And something that, that I think is very important for us to understand is that Christ's goodness towards you and his goodness towards me and his love towards you and his love towards me is an overflow and is rooted in a deeper love for his glory. And, so, and when I say that, some of us are like, man, it seems like you're minimizing the love of Jesus. To say that Jesus loves me, but only because he loves his glory, like that seems like a, like, like, man, you just took something that was so sweet and so pure to me and you made it lesser than. But I actually think that that actually increases it. You want to know why? Because God loves you for nothing that you've done. You see that? God's love towards you is not because of anything that you've done for him. It's not because you deserve it. It's not because of the things that you've done. And here's the thing. And because of that, there's nothing you can do that can make God love you any more than he does right now. And there's nothing that you can do that will make God love you any less. Why? Because his love for you is not based on you. That's a freeing thought. To know that God's love for me is not based on me. It's because he chooses to for his own glory. Hallelujah. I heard another pastor say, what is the greatest display of God's power? The greatest display of God's power was not when he made the universe out of nothing. Because in there he took nothing and he made something. But the greatest display of God's power is when he takes a sinner like me, wretched and pitiful as I was, and he turns me into a beautiful work of art for his glory. That's power. Amen. That's power. 
And we talk about why are we humble. We're not just humble because we love other people. We're humble because we love our Father. We don't humble ourselves before other people because other people deserve it. We humble ourselves before other people because our Father deserves it. So if you're in this room and you don't have a relationship with Christ, you've never come to this point where you've humbly fallen on your knees before your Father and said, Father, forgive me of my sins. God, thank you for humbling yourself for me. I invite you to do that this morning. And if you are a Christian, if you have accepted that by the blood of Jesus Christ, praise the Lord, but know that there is always more that we can grow in our humility towards God. And, you know, sometimes maybe you see people come up to this altar and you see them get on their knees and you're like, what is that all about? It's not just for show, but what it is is it's externally showing what's happening internally. We get on our knees physically to show that we're getting on our knees spiritually. And if that's what you need to do this morning, I encourage you to come up to this front. No one will look. If you need to talk to somebody, we have our next steps room. But know that because Jesus humbled himself for you, you can humble yourself for him. Father, I thank you and I praise you. God, please be with us as we close this service. God, I thank you for the fact that Jesus has a humility that I can never fathom. The Father, you did for me what I could never do for you. God, you, you opposed your son so that you could welcome me with grace. God, I thank you for that truth. I thank you for the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus. And God, I ask that if, if there's anyone in this room that does not know this, does not have a relationship with you, God, that you would do what I could not do. Father, I could speak to ears all day long, but your spirit can convict and cut to heart. God, I thank you and praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit online at gocentralchurch.org.